If you look for it, every day has cause for celebration. Celebrate a friend for their promotion baby wedding life thing. Celebrate yourself for keeping the couch warm. It's no easy feat, especially if it's a big couch. Or maybe you just want to celebrate living in 2023 where you can get beer, wine, and spirits delivered from Drizzly in under 60 minutes without leaving said couch. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com and get your favorite drinks delivered today. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes Mark Wasserman to discuss his book, Skaboom, an American Ska and Reggae Oral History. Email us at LetItRollPodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by Mark Wasserman, the author of Skaboom, an American Ska and Reggae Oral History. Mark, welcome to the show. Hey, Nate. Thanks so much for having me. Cool. And this book, I'm, it's going to drop kind of uh, out of sequence. I'm planning to do sort of a whole history of Ska because I find the genre fascinating the way it's bounced back and forth from starting with American R&B, coming out of Memphis and New Orleans, bouncing over to Jamaica in the 60s and becoming ska as we know it, then re-emerging as the two-tone movement in England in the late 70s. And then there's this totally improbable third wave of ska that becomes a huge cultural and popular phenomenon in the U.S. in the 1990s. But your book is about the U.S. in the 1980s primarily, and this series of bands who are sort of a bridge between second wave and third wave ska. How did you decide to focus on this particular era? Sure. Well, I was actually part of that era. So uh, I, I lived and breathed it. I helped start the first ska band in New Jersey called Bigger Thomas in uh, the mid to late 80s. So um, we were part of that wave of bands that uh, really were the ones that influenced all the bands that people know today. Um, you know, we were out there playing along with the the Toasters in New York and Bim Scalabim in Boston and the Untouchables in, in LA and sort of um, were like the pioneers who were out there um, evangelizing about ska before it really was um, more popular, more of a cultural phenomena. But your book starts even earlier than that. There's a whole wave of these first, and some of them aren't even ska bands. They're, they're true reggae bands. Tell us about this first batch of three or four bands that you picked to put in the book and why you picked them, and why they're historically important. Sure. So um, reggae started to make sort of inroads here in the U.S. in like the early 70s. Um, And there were certain places in the country where it was more popular. 
for instance, um, one of the first bands I write about in my book is a band called The Shakers, who were from Berkeley, California. And Berkeley was sort of the epicenter for, for reggae in the U.S. for a while. Um, there was a club there, the Long Branch, and they developed sort of this connection with Jamaican bands. So they would actually fly bands in from Kingston, Jamaica to uh, San Francisco, and they would play shows at Long Branch and they developed sort of a whole following in, in turned Berkeley onto reggae at around the same time that like um, the Grateful Dead were popular and a lot of bands coming out of um, Northern California were popular. But um, the Shakers were influenced by that and they um, started to play their own Americanized version of reggae. If you don't grow up playing reggae music, it can be a little hard to um, learn how to play it authentically. And so these guys woodshedded for a while and came pretty close. Um, but they became a phenomenon in Berkeley, California, and so much so that they were selling out every Sunday night for a year. And that caught the attention of major labels. There was actually a, um, a bidding war for them, and they ended up on Electra Asylum. Um, what's interesting about their story is that Electra Asylum really didn't know what to do with them once they signed them. No one had ever signed a reggae band before, and they tried to market them more like the Beach Boys or sort of a pop rock band. And this caused a lot of problems um, with the band who saw themselves as an authentic reggae band. So that's one of the interesting stories. But overall, reggae just sort of made inroads. And so there was a another band from... Uh, Kansas City, Missouri, the Blue Rhythm Band, similar to to the Shakers, who just got turned on to reggae. And these guys were really amazing soul and jazz musicians. And they really got um, the genre down. And a couple of them traveled to Jamaica, where they met um, members of, of reggae bands down there and developed sort of an apprenticeship with those guys. But people who saw Blue Rhythm Band, I didn't, I was too young to see them, said that they were as good as any reggae bands from Jamaica. And in fact, um, they were so good that they were invited to play Sunsplash. And they were the first American and all white band ever invited to perform at Sunsplash. That's how good they were. So that's sort of where these were the, the pioneers. That's sort of where reggae sort of started. Um, but then the two-tone bands um, showed up here, uh, the Specials, the English Beat, the Selector. And that started a whole another wave of bands that sort of followed that down, but it sort of started with reggae before it got into more of the two-tone ska. Yeah, and what I found interesting about that section, the first three or four bands in the book, is that you can see the roots, the regional roots of the ska movement being planted. Like Berkeley goes on to become, and, and the Bay Area in general, become one of the epicenters of third wave ska, um, you know, Operation Ivy, and, and that whole punk ska genre and then um but some of these roots like kansas city doesn't go on to become a major center and before we get to two-tone i want to talk about the one band out of this that did have a massive commercial impact i also should mention the box boys in la because la becomes an enormous center for this but one of the bands that i was totally surprised to find in the table of contents here was the hooters who i remember from mtv and live aid i had no idea they started out as a ska group yeah, well, I grew up in um, in Princeton, New Jersey, so that's halfway between New York radio and Philadelphia radio. So um, we were able to pick up radio from both um, cities, and um, the Hooters were, were definitely a Philadelphia phenomenon. And yeah, what a lot of people don't know is that they um, first started out as sort of pro progressive rock bands in Philadelphia, 
signed um, major deals, but didn't get real traction, didn't sort of connect. And um, the two lead guys from the Hooters um, went to see Madness one, one rainy night in Philadelphia and were completely blown away. This was like around 1980. And they came out of seeing them that night and said to each other, we got to try and do something like this. And they actually went home and the next day started demoing ska and reggae songs. Each one of them actually, Rob Hyman, who I, who I got to know pretty well, he had gone to Jamaica as a teenager. His family traveled to Jamaica in the 60s for a holiday and vacation. And he became um, enamored of reggae. And uh, he knew about reggae and he turned on the other members of the Hooters uh, to reggae. And they became really big in Philadelphia. But, but again, sort of odd, um, a, a band playing mostly for, for fans of, of rock music. Philadelphia was, was known as a rock and roll city, but they took over Philly with, with this ska and reggae sound. And they took it, they did it for about two years and got signed to a major label. And then what often happens is you sort of um, smooth out the edges in order to be more marketable. So their record label sort of convinced them to move a little bit to the middle and become more of a rock band. But if you listen to some of their early songs, uh, their most famous song is a song called Zombies. You hear um, uh, elements of reggae, but if you compare it to the original, there's there's no comparison. There's a rock version and then there's a reggae version. But yeah, again, this, this just goes to show how popular the sound of two-tone ska and reggae had become among like really in the know musicians at that point in American music. And let's go ahead and hear our first song, and then we'll come back and talk about Two Ton a little bit more. And this is a band out of LA, The Untouchables, is their song Wild Child. was the untouchables wild child from the mid-1980s coming out of los angeles and and this was a crew i first saw them in repo man where they didn't have um a musical role but i was totally intrigued i was my older brother had the english beat what happened in album and i was very into that and i got the madness first madness album and so i definitely noticed the untouchables um but when i finally got the record it sounded more like stacks to me it sounded like what I knew of as Blues Brothers songs. And so I was pretty, <laughs> I was kind of a swerve there. Tell us about Two-Tone first and how they, you know, it was this massive phenomenon in England, but how did American record companies deal with this or not deal with this? Sure. Um, I think, yeah, so you're right. Two-Tone was was massive in, in England um, for about a year or so. Uh, it was the the sound of of the year, um, and those bands were on top of the pops, which was the uh, you know popular weekly show that made or break would would make or break bands at the time in the the British charts. But you have the specials, <clears throat> Bad Manners, Madness, The English Beat, The Selector, um, and <clears throat> they were all a lot of them were signed to Chrysalis, and Chrysalis um, tried to break them here in the U.S. Uh, with some difficulty. But um, the specials toured here. Madness toured here. The selector did make a quick visit. Um, 
I think they made an impact in big cities here in the U.S. So Boston, New York, Chicago, L.A., there were sellout crowds to see these bands. Um, smaller markets, it was a little more difficult because I think it, the marketing budgets just didn't go that far. But in L.A., um, Two-Tone was so popular and the specials and selector were so popular that um, they're the Whiskey A Go-Go Club in, in Los Angeles actually painted itself in black and white checks to celebrate the uh, first shows that the specials and the selector played. That's how, how big a deal it was in L.A. And everybody who was anybody in L.A. music at that point went to see these shows, um, including members of the Untouchables um, and the Box Boys, uh, who heard Two-Tone and were completely influenced by it. It made sense to them to try and play uh, this type of music. And you're right. What sort of happened was that the Untouchables mixed their own um, take on two-tone with what they grew up listening to, which was traditional soul and R&B. So you sort of get this, what they called mod ska, but was really um, a mix of bands like the Kinks and the Who and Motown with, to- with two-tone. So you, you get with the Untouchables this um, initial uh, American version, what I like to call it, a uniquely American version of ska that brings in all sorts of influences and begins to sort of demonstrate that ska is mutable. You can mix it with all sorts of different genres and it still sort of works. And one thing that um, was interesting to me reading the book is that certain regions tended to have more of an African-American presence in their ska bands than other regions. And L.A. uh, had more flavor than other parts of the country. Not only was the Untouchables uh, thoroughly integrated, but Fishbone was all black. And Fishbone was the first band that really exploded big in my consciousness that first ep and and we'll get to this um their ep and the untouchables first album and the toasters ep in the in the preface of the book uh, you have someone coming in and and write an essay basically the year ska broke what was it about 1985 and those three records that sort of acted like johnny appleseed for the scene yeah i think uh yeah that was um steve schaefer Who's a who's a blogger, a ska blogger that I'm uh, Thank you. I've known for a long time. Um, yeah, I think uh, Steve makes a really um, interesting. Uh, he has an interesting thesis, which I agree with, um, which is why I put it in the book to sort of provide some context. But yeah, 1985 stands out because you had um, releases by The Untouchables, which became one of the fastest selling independent records ever. Um, you had uh, Fishbone who were signed to Columbia, a major label. And then you have the Toasters, who were on their own grassroots um, label, Moon Records. Um, each of them, in their own way, um, uh, sort of um, creates their own version of ska. And all of them are road warriors, meaning they're out touring all the time. Especially, uh, sorry, the Toasters were the first band who really sort of made an effort to tour. Um, they went from New York to L.A., um, and they really... Um, blazed a trail for other bands from the New York ska scene later on, but they made an effort to get out on the road and, you know, sometimes played to full houses and some sometimes played to nobody, but um, they were committed to popularizing ska. Uh, Fishbone um, followed in the footsteps of the uh, Untouchables and took their sound and added like punk rock and hardcore and all these other things that they were into, um, funk, and created their own unique sound that uh, 
you know, as the untouchables were sort of coming to an end, the untouchables were signed and by stiff records and went to England. And in that vacuum, Fishbone came out of nowhere and basically became the kings of L.A. ska. Um, and it was, I think, their ferocious shows that just people were blown away by. I remember seeing them at the Ritz in ha- Halloween in 1984 as a, as a teenager, and I'd never seen anything like that. It was um, like Jimi Hendrix meets the specials. It just everybody was blown away. But I think those three bands combined in each of their individual efforts and the way that they were marketed sort of um, demonstrated that ska had marketability. Yeah, absolutely. And why is Fishbone not in the book? I have a couple of theories and they've gotten a lot of attention elsewhere. There's a documentary, et cetera. But I was sort of expecting to read more about Fishbone in the book. Yeah, um, you're right. I I, I felt there were two reasons they're not in the book. One, there was a lot of other um, uh, material about them. There was a great documentary about them. Uh, I just didn't feel like I could compete with that. And, And the other reason was I had uh, as big as the book is, I had a limited uh, amount of space that I could use. And I really wanted to make sure some of the smaller bands that people might not be familiar with got the respect that I felt they were due. You know, growing up in the New York ska scene, there were bands that were very influential to me. And I had to make the hard decision about not including Fishbone so that I could include chapters on um, a band like Deep Brigade or a band like Skadanks, who I felt um, deserved readers' attention as well. And I'm really glad you did that because there's um, this sort of thing with history. I think they call it survivor's bias, where we always read about Moby Dick from the perspective of the one guy in the boat who survived. And and we always read about music history from the perspective of Elvis or the Beatles or Jay-Z or whatever. And 99% of musicians do not enjoy that kind of career. So I think it's very, very educational to read a book like this and read about how many things can go wrong uh, for a band. And, you know, the record companies come through, especially the major labels. I mean, I think Moon Sky Records comes out looking pretty good in this book. That's the Toaster's uh, private label or independent label. But the major labels really seem like sort of like, you know, a big sow and a tiny pin with a whole lot of piglets and, oops, accidentally rolled over another three of them, you know. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> uh, kind of thing. But... um. The um, next thing I want to get to is this this regionalism. So you 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 focus on different scenes. I mean, Boston is another scene I was kind of expecting to see more because the mighty body Bostones, of course, emerged out of there. Tell us about Bim Scala Bim and how they kind of planted the um, um, ska flag in Boston. But actually, Steph is telling me I gotta uh, um, do my next cue before we go there. So I'm gonna I'm gonna. Pick um, Bim Scala Bim's Better Get Out. And then when we come back, you'll tell us about the band. Bim Scala Bims, better get out. Tell us how they planted the flag for Scott and Boston and why they didn't become the household name that the Mighty Mighty Bostons did. Sure. So like Berkeley, um, Boston was a hotbed of reggae. Um, 
there's some debate about this, but one of the earliest reggae radio shows was um, at in Boston, I think at Emerson College. Um, so there was a, already a ready-made market for an openness to, to reggae music in, in Boston. There was a small sort of Jamaican community there. Um, but uh, early members of BIM Scala, BIM heard the specials, heard the English beat, were big fans of reggae, and um, started out sort of as like a mix of like a punk band and a ska band, and then decided that they were going to go all in on ska. And that was a smart choice in Boston at the time. And they immediately became sort of... Um, club darlings they were booked everywhere and they were willing to play shows that other bands wouldn't they were willing to take 50 or 100 dollars a night um which wasn't a lot of money when you have seven members in a band but the visibility it gave them um was immeasurable and um they used that to sort of become this uh crowd pleasing band and and i think they came out at a time when people after sort of punk and hardcore wanted to dance again and they didn't want to like bang into each other or get into fights on the dance floor and so the danceability of their music was also a big draw and uh you know again what what i tried to do in this book was to show that bands like operation ivy and the mighty mighty boston's were influenced and they were influenced by bands that came before them so bim scala bim play an important role because they had members of the boston's in the audience when they would play Members of the of the Boston said to the to Bim Scalabim, "We're starting a band because we want to be like you," and so I think that's the highest compliment. Um, same thing with Operation Ivy; they were, um, you know, big in in the Bay Area, um, and and they were fans of ska um, as well. So they, these uh, what's what's key for readers really to understand is that like ska didn't start in Boston with the Bostones. It didn't start in, in the Bay Area with Operation Ivy. These people were all influenced by bands in my book. So that's why I think it's important that um, there's some historical context for, um, you know, 40 or 50 years later, you know, what we have now comes from the roots of the bands that are in my book. Absolutely. And I also think that your book does a good job of putting the scene in context with what else was going on in the American underground at the time. And the way that some bands like Fishbone, I saw them in 1988 and absolute revelation. I mean, this was a band that was playing danceable, fun ska, but also rocked as hard as any hardcore punk band or heavy metal band going at that time. I think I saw them a week after I saw Slayer and a week before I saw the Butthole Surfers, and they absolutely could hang, if not blow away, those bands. But, and you know, and you had the Bad Brains, of course, the pioneering first hardcore punk and then kind of pioneered funk metal, and they would always mix in reggae and give this, themselves a lot of dynamics. And Scott kind of functioned in the scene as kind of a breather and you know a lot of times friends that were girls would ask me is this a cool show for me because i don't want to go and get beat up in the pit or whatever and i'd be it's a scotch show so you'll be cool and you can dance and have fun and and that i think is an important um perspective to have on the scene and and, and the way things played out but let's go to the toasters in new york city because that's the one scene that didn't produce a big superstar in the 90s. And yet you make a pretty strong case that this was probably the heart of ska in the States in the 80s. Tell us about the toasters and that whole story. Sure. Um, you're right. I agree with you 100%. Um, 
it is a shame that the toasters didn't uh, get signed to a major deal. And there are a lot of reasons for that, uh, which are, are um, sort of talked about in the book, the members of the band that I interviewed. But yeah, Rob Hingley was, um, was an expat Englishman who came over to New York ostensibly to manage a comic book store um, and ended up staying. Um, and he uh, grew up in the 60s when um, Rocksteady and reggae were really popular in England, when you would hear that on the radio in England or you'd hear it in a, a pub and um, started playing music in like the early 70s and, and played in a, in a sort of prototype reggae rock band, which I guess you could sort of draw the line between what he did then and what he did with the toasters. But while he was in New York, he wanted to keep playing music and he went to see the English beat play a show in New York City and it wasn't well attended. And he was really upset by this and thought like, this is a great band. They just put on a great show. Why weren't there more people here? And why weren't they more enthusiastic? And so he has said that that was really the um, catalyst for why he wanted to start his own band. And it was um, a bit of a hit or miss approach for him because Americans that he met who were musicians, didn't really know how to play ska and reggae. It is, as I mentioned earlier, it's a different approach technically as a musician. Rock musicians play on the two and the four. Reggae's on the three. And so if you haven't grown up playing that, particularly as a drummer, it can be really confusing. It's almost inverted. Some people have said it's like Greek. If you're a musician and you're like, I don't understand what's going on here. The drummer is playing completely differently where I would normally play on the hi-hat. He's playing on the snare and vice versa. But through hit and miss, he found a couple of musicians and um, he started the toasters when um, CBGB's and other sort of punk rock clubs were everywhere in the city. And you could play out five or six nights a week and sort of make a living. And that's what he did. And they were the only ska band in New York and they developed a devoted following. And a lot of the other bands in the book that I write about were started by high school kids who went to see the toasters in the early eighties and were so influenced by, by two tone, but also having a, a ska, their own ska band in their own backyard that they started a, a scene. So basically Rob Hingley sort of responsible for cultivating um, the New York City ska scene. Now, why the Toasters weren't signed to a major label is, is I mean, you, we could debate this for, for the whole rest of the show, but what I think the prevailing belief is, is that the Toasters are a very traditional sounding band. Rob Hingley has sort of stuck to his guns in terms of a sound that he likes. And if you compare them with the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, there's, a real distinct difference in their sound. The, the boss tones incorporate hard rock, hardcore, punk. And, and at that time, the people marketing record labels and signing bands, I think, saw that the boss tones probably were going to have a, a better impact marketing-wise for their dollars than the toasters were. Even though the toasters had sort of been out there evangelizing and pioneering and, and popularizing the sound, they sort of opened up the pocket for the boss tones. And that's where the record labels went. Now, there's a rumor that, that, that the Toasters were offered a deal. There's some debate about that, uh, that Rob Hingley turned down the deal because he didn't think it was right or the money wasn't there, whatever. But for whatever reason, it just wasn't meant to be. But the fact is that, that he's still out there touring the world and still doing it. And, and you have to give the guy credit for that, that he hasn't given up on, on what ska means to him and why he wants to keep playing it. But um you know, their, their role was to open the door for other bands that got signed and sort of became the face of ska. And let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. When we come back, I want you to tell me about uh, the label that Bucket Hingley ran, Moon Records. 
That cold case you're listening to? Nasty stuff. But you know what else is a crime? Missing even a moment of whatever you're doing to go on a drink run. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered in under 60 minutes. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. And so not only did um, Bucket and the Toasters, you know, relentless road warriors and, and you know, evangelists for ska, but, but Bucket also had his own label, Moon Records, which later became known as Moon Ska Records because there was another Moon Records. And one rumor that I would hear every once in a while in the 80s or 90s was that the reason that they didn't sign with a major label and there was a huge feeding frenzy when major labels were signing anybody kind of post Nirvana and they didn't know what was going to hit big. But I was hearing consistently that it was sort of like Fugazi where Ian McKay had discord records and made more money owning his own label and that moon um, put bucket in a similar boat. Do you think there's any truth to that theory? Yes, I do. I think that um, whatever your point of view on what he should or shouldn't have done, he stuck to his guns and decided that he wanted to be his own boss and not sell out to a major label. And you're right. At that point, I think, I don't know how many bands were signed to moon, but I think the offer from Mercury records was to buy moon. Um, and then they would decide uh, which bands they wanted to keep and which bands they, they didn't. And I, I don't think he wanted to, um, to do that. I, I think he has principles and, and wanted to stick to those. Um, so that I think is how that, uh, played out but yeah you know it's it's just interesting he really is a case study for how to run an independent record label which you know it's hard to do now in the 21st century but back then when um bands couldn't you know record on their computer and you had to go in the studio he offered a um a path for bands he felt were marketable uh, who were willing to go on the road and had good material and while he was touring the country with the toasters he was also sort of acting as an a and r man so if he would see a band in a city that was opening for them and felt that they uh, were worthy, he would offer them a very simple one page contract and basically would say, you know, you record, you, you put the expense into recording your own songs and I will split with you 50, 50, the profits on the sales of, of those. And I'll distribute it and put it out for you. And, you know, that was really how a lot of bands got their start. One of, one of the bands in my book, let's go bowling. That's how they got really popular. He saw them, they opened for him in somewhere in Southern California and he was blown away by them and offered them a record deal. And I can't remember the number exactly when I spoke to um, Mark Michelle, the bass player from Let's Go Bowling. But I think their first record might have sold 250,000 copies, something crazy like that. Over, and you know, that is incredible years. for an indie record. On, on that exactly. And, and, and Let's Go Bowling committed to what uh, Rob Hingley had sort of said to them, which was go on the road, you know, 300 shows a year. And they did. They played everywhere. They opened for Pearl Jam. I mean, they really put every ounce of effort into it. Um, and so that was, I think, that on case study shows you how it could be done. Now, there were other bands that didn't work out with who weren't willing to go on the road or just wasn't marketable. And, and then what happened was, uh, you know, Rob looked for distribution deals. And when those records weren't selling, those distributors returned all of the um, product back to him. And that was sort of the downfall, unfortunately, of, of Moonstar Records was that he was bankrupted by um, fickle tastes or distributors who didn't think that, that they were going to get anything 
um, for all the inventory that he had sent them. So it was unfortunately sort of this, um, he was in a, a tough spot, a uh, rock and a hard place between trying to popularize ska and the changing taste in music from ska to grunge to, to um, you know, uh, heavy metal again. So, you know, he plays an Im- important role in the history, but he also is, is sort of um, a cautionary tale for putting all your eggs in sort of one basket and then, you know, having that come back and bite you, unfortunately. Yeah, and, and something we've talked about over and over again through the Let It Roll series is that nothing can kill an indie label faster than some success. So when you sell 250,000 copies of one record, then you start printing more of other records and, and you end up with all the sunk costs and distributors basically pay you on the basis of how big they think your next record is going to be. And once you're on the wrong side of that wave, it's murder. But there's two more things I want you to talk about with the toasters before we move on. And one is their connection with Joe Jackson and how that helped them. And the other one is some of the compilations they put out featuring the New York band. So tell us about Joe Jackson's connection to the toasters first. Sure. Um, From what I understand, um, you know, before Rob came over to New York, he managed a, a comic book store in London and Joe Jackson was a big fan of, uh, I think, French-style comic books. I'm not a comic book person, but that, that was sort of what I understood. And um, they built up a relationship, and this was before Joe Jackson sort of had success in England as a solo artist. Um, and then when Rob was in New York, Joe Jackson had, had uh, apparently moved to New York uh, after some initial success with his first couple records and walked into the comic book store one day, and they reconnected. Um, and at that point, the Toasters were, were um, an active band, and Joe Jackson was who he was at that point in the, in the uh, mid-'80s. And um, uh, he, uh, they agreed that Joe would produce the first, uh, the first Toasters EP, which he did, under the name Stanley Turpentine, because uh, he needed to hide the fact <laughs> from his That's classic, that sorry. He, yeah, he wasn't, you know, who he, they would not have allowed him to do this. So he used that... Um, that name Stanley Turpentine and he ended up actually producing, I think one or two other toasters records, but they, they built a real bond. Um, they both were fans of the same uh, soccer team, Tottenham Hotspur uh, from England. They both sort of grown up in, in the same neighborhoods of London and, and run around with the same people. So I think they were, you know, in both expats in New York, uh, I think they, they left being able to hang out and, and um, you know, talk about the old days in England, but yeah, Joe brought a real professionalism as a producer to their sound. And, um, he would, uh, occasionally when he was free, he would hop up, hop up on stage with them. Uh, so if you were sometimes in the audience at CBGB's, you might be surprised and suddenly to see Joe Jackson jump up on stage with the toasters. Um, so that was always, um, you know, an exciting thing for people. Um, and yeah, the compilations, um, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the toasters were really responsible for kickstarting a, a ska scene in New York city with all these high school kids. And when Rob noticed that, he said, you know what, I want to document this. And he, he, he went around. A lot of these bands would open for the toasters um, at clubs around New York. And again, these are kids who were 14, 15, 16 years old. And he would say to them, record a song and I'm going to put a compilation out. And he documented this, the New York City Scott scene of the mid 80s. Um, this uh, album, New York, New York Beat Hit and Run, which I had and anybody who was into ska music in, in the New York metro area had. And it was a real amazing document of... Um, of what the New York City ska scene was like at that point in time. And a lot of the bands in my book are bands that, that were featured on that album, bands that I went to see um, when I was a teenager who influenced me to start a band, which is, again, why I wanted to pay respects to, to bands like Second Step and Deep Brigade. Um, 
because they were out doing it uh, as well. And they sounded like I wanted my band to sound. But he went even beyond that. I mean, he went from a documenting the New York scene to um, uh, doing a compilation album that's, that's pretty influential called Scarface that was um, bands from all over the country. And again, while he was out on the road, he would see these bands and, and made the same offer to them. I think no doubt first recording on an, on an album was on Scarface. So that's, you know, that's how important that record was. And, and the fact that he was out there seeing all these bands as they were getting started. And let's go ahead and hear a little bit of the toasters. This is their track recrimination. Toaster's recrimination. Now, I wanted to backtrack because there was one anecdote in the BIM Scala BIM chapter that we didn't get to that I really wanted to get to. They also had a celebrity producer uh, contact. It didn't work out as well as the Toaster's relationship with Joe Jackson, but they actually worked with the legendary Rolling Stones producer and traffic producer, Jimmy Miller. Tell us about that because that's not an era when you're hearing a lot about what Jimmy Miller was up to. Right. Well, um, and no disrespect to Jimmy Miller, but he was somebody that could be found in Boston bars um, <laughs> pretty regularly back then. And I think Bim uh, were out one night and and literally bumped into him. And a couple of guys in the band were huge fans of Rolling Stones and Traffic and any of the other bands that he had produced. You know, they were all big fans of music in general. And they started a conversation with him and told him that he, they were in a band. And he came to see them and really liked them. And so they began to negotiate with him to be the producer on a couple of tracks. Um, and then he started to work with them. But I think at that point in time, he was having some issues uh, with substance abuse. And so they told me some stories about how he would come to the studio ready to work and would set all the levels and they would get started and they would come back in and he would be asleep. <laughs> so, um, you know, they'd say, well, he really set the levels great on the drum. But he didn't, unfortunately, because of, uh, you know, being, you know, in the throes of substance abuse at that point, he didn't have a lot of impact on their overall sound. But I think initially they thought um, when they started to work with him that working with someone of his, a, a producer of his caliber would really elevate them in the minds of record labels. And they probably were right if it had worked out well. But it ended up being sort of a comedy of errors, unfortunately. And Jimmy Miller had a, a manager who didn't know he was doing this because Bim Scalabim were paying him under the table separately, and the manager found out and came in and threatened the members of Bim Scalabim. So any of the recordings that they did with him, unfortunately, for the most part, had to be scrapped. Although I think there are one or two that, that are out on a compilation album. I think they did a cover of a Beatles song, um, Rain, I think, that he might have produced. But yeah, again, one of those kind of interesting anecdotes and stories that show, um, again, these hit or miss uh, uh, situations that if they had gone slightly different in a different direction, you never know what might have, might have happened. Bim Scalabin might have been a household name. Um, but unfortunately, that just didn't work out for them. And the other sort of, 
I mean, and the Jimmy Miller thing ultimately is tragic. You know, great man fallen to very low heights. But, but the second one is more kind of farcical. When they were on a label, Celluloid Records, which was uh, connected with major labels, and they kind of get shunted aside because of a freak hit that Celluloid has on their hands, the Lambada. This was not something I was expecting to be reading about in a book about ska, but it's such a classic record industry story. Tell us a little bit about that. And and also yeah. how they um, got their payout in the end. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. I I think again you you've sort of noted earlier there were some un, unscrupulous folks who were who were um, hunting around for opportunities and and Scott certainly was an opportunity in the late '80s and early '90s. And um, Celluloid actually signed both the Toasters and Bim Scala Bim and started uh, a label for them called um, I think Scott Celluloid or Celluloid Scott I remember. Um, and they did all the recording and they, they, they were just about to, to, um, launch both records when the Lombada came out of nowhere. And I think if, if you remember, you kind of couldn't go anywhere for a period of time without hearing the Lombada. Like you could be at a baseball game and you'd hear the Lombada or like, you know, in the mall and you'd hear the Lombada. It was everywhere. And so I think Celluloid put all of their energy or efforts behind marketing that and kind of sort of shelved the toasters and, and BIM Scala BIM records. I mean, they came out, but they didn't put any uh, marketing effort behind them whatsoever. And again, uh, this is a, just another example of bad luck. Uh, again, if any of these things had gone in a slightly different direction, just a little bit more to the left or a little bit more to the right, um, who knows what, what could have happened? Maybe one of those bands could have had a, a hit on the level of the Lombada, but but they didn't. You'll have to refresh my memory on how they were repaid. This I is don't the, remember. Yeah, this is where they um, uh, had some friends or early fans who got jobs at MTV and ended up licensing oh, yeah. their songs for the real world and road rules. And I've got some acquaintances who've had songs on TV soundtracks, and that is a lucrative score. Yes, thank you for reminding me. Yes, that's right. So um, I think there were interns who worked at Celluloid who were huge fans of um, Bim Scala Bim. And at some show at CBGB's, you know, two in the morning, drunkenly said to to Dan, the lead singer, we're going to, we love you. We're going to, we're going to help you someday. And he's like, yeah, yeah, sure. And they did. Um, they, uh, they, uh, if, if you remember MTV from the 90s, Every show had what's called bumpers. Maybe you want to explain what a bumper is, um, since you're in the biz. But it's, um, yeah, uh, it's just a, a, br a brief segment connecting other segments, and they would, you know, have some visuals, and it's a great spot to put a, a song in. Right. So you'd be watching the Roll, Road Rules or um, any other MTV show at the time, and you would hear a snippet of Bim Scala Bim, and you'd be like, "What's it? What is that? Wait a minute, I know what song that is." And you're right, it was incredibly lucrative. I think Dan told me um, after some of their songs started appearing in um, uh, uh, as bumpers, they got like a $50,000 check, which was the most money they had seen in years. And that kept them afloat for a while. So again, you know, this was something that worked out in a way that I don't think anybody expected it would. You wouldn't have expected to hear BIM um, on MTV. But the fact is that there were fans at this point who were in, positions of authority where they could make these sorts of decisions. Um, you know, they were booking bands on uh, Conan O'Brien, or they were making decisions as producers on television shows, and they were fans of ska music. So that's when that started to happen. 
And let's hear our last track. This is Armageddon Beat from the Beat Brigade. Well, the time has come for revolution To free young minds from this persecution Yet then it's over, but it just began Stepping in the rhythm of the gamma drum Dance with the music and swing with the heat Armageddon Beat Armageddon Beat Dance with the music and the mind of Sparrow Forget about your words, you'll need them till tomorrow and that was Armageddon Beat from the Beat Brigade. And, and the Beat Brigade is just a classic case study. Uh, if I had a kid who wanted to be in a band, I would make him read this book and give me a book report on it because there are so many ways things can go wrong. And the Beat Brigade, I thought, had one of the most sort of, again, comic slash tragic horrific endings when they got a manager who had a vision for the band that was totally at odds with their sound. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it is a tragic story, and I know all of those guys very well, um, which makes it sadder. Such talented musicians and had a real vision for sound that they wanted. But again, came up at a time where there just wasn't um, the democratic access to recording that there is now. Um, And so you really needed a lot of money in order to go into a recording studio. And a 17 or 18-year-old without jobs, you don't have $2,000 to pay a producer or an engineer to go into a studio. So back then, um, there were actually people who would go to shows and say, I'd like to manage you. I mean, now we think of managers as being people who are managers for big name stars. But back then, there were, there were people who, who, who did this. And um, what I think is even more tragic about this manager that connected with Beat Brigade is that he had a vision for the band that included his songs, <laughs> not their songs. So he wanted them to play songs that he was writing. So um, unfortunately, in some cases, they went along with this um, or he told them that they should their drummer wasn't good enough and that they should get rid of him because he was having some trouble um, in the studio. And so they turned over some of that initial energy they had as a group to this person who sort of um, unfortunately um, broke them up because uh, he was telling them that he had contacts that were interested in signing them, but they needed to listen to him. And that's another, you know, cautionary tale. Uh, yeah. I think there's a and, lot. Oh, and ahead, the sorry. hilarious, uh, sorry, the, the hilarious aspect to me was that he was obsessed with Steve Winwood, who was having this big sort of late <laughs> 80s second career run playing just the quintessentially 80s soft rock sound. And so it's just, I just had this vision of this Goomba coked up, I can just imagine what he was wearing and and telling the band to sound more like Steve Winwood. (laughs) Yeah. 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 You got that or you got uh, there were a lot of ska bands when the Red Hot Chili Peppers first came out who decided to to go the punk funk route. So in a lot of cases, you had um, people who got distracted. Um, You know, uh, you know, you had people like Rob Hingley who were on a mission and stuck with their sound. And then you had folks who I think getting signs was, was more important than staying true to what the reason that they started being in a ska band in the first place. And you see a lot of that in the early and mid nineties. Yeah. And there's, there's a couple more stories we don't have time to go into that, that are pretty telling that the fate of second step where they were kind of taken over, I think it was a trombone player who was one of these, you know, Berkeley school of music grads and nothing wrong with that, but 
they kind of have some blind spots and he's slowly but surely sort of like um, invasion of the pod people or something. You know, he's replacing the <laughs> original members of the bands with guys from Berkeley School of Music. And then one day wakes up and he's got this sort of, you know, lifeless muso band rather than this lively ska band he'd replace. But I want to talk about two pivotal events that helped ska break through that you talk uh, about at the end of the book. And and that's the um, International Ska Festival and Earth Day celebration in 1990 in San Francisco that brought in 10,000 fans. And and then uh, the Scalapalooza show in Manhattan that brought in uh, 2,500 fans in the site of the old Studio 54. Tell us about these events and how they combined uh, the efforts of not just second wave ska groups like Dave Wakeling and Rankin Roger, but also the Scatolites themselves uh, came out and toured with some of these bands. And how did this sort of create the, you know, sort of like an explosion in these two events that catalyzed the, the emergence of ska as a major force in pop in the 90s? Sure. Um, well, that's part of the reason I call the book Ska Boom because uh, there was an explosion. There was this uh, grassroots um, uh, scene that started to knit together because these bands were all sort of touring across the country back and forth and developing relationships with one another and then starting to book tours with one another. Um, and that's the perfect example of what was going on uh, at the International Ska Festival in Berkeley in 1990. Um, this was the result of years of networking and of bands touring and realizing that California really was the goldmine for an audience that was into ska music. It still is, you know, the current sort of American reggae scene is in many ways based in, in California. Um, but there is an audience there and whether that's because of fishbone and the untouchables or, or there's just more open ears for this type of music, um, you know, going back to Berkeley when the, when um, uh, all those reggae bands were playing there in the, in the, in the seventies, for whatever reason, uh, the, the children of those people, come out to this show. And it is a revelation because uh, no one, I think, expected that large a crowd. And then I, I think what happened was that those 10,000 people really were like um, the, uh, the, 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 you know, ground zero for, for evangelizing about Sky even more. Because I think every person who went to that show was so into it that they told 10 friends. And, and you really start to begin to see... Um, particularly in California, that ska becomes on the level. You know, it's being played on commercial radio, which is even, you know, amazing that, you know, somebody like Casey Phillips, who's a well-known ska DJ, starts around that time. And Casey was actually responsible in some ways for getting Roland Alfonso of Scottalites there. He had befriended him and um, he had negotiated to bring Roland to that show and said, you know, I'm bringing him. Does anybody have um, room for him to play? And actually, Let's Go Bowling did. Let's Go Bowling were probably the most traditional American ska band, modeled themselves on the Scottalites. And Roland Alfonso gets up on stage with them, having never met them before, and they know how to play like five or six of his songs. And he was blown away at how technically accurate they were in playing Scottalite songs. And I, um, I remember speaking to Mark Michelle, the bass player, who said they were all terrified because... Um, he kept turning around and putting his hand down and saying, slow down, because they were all so nervous playing with him, not to mention being in front of 10,000 people. But they had sped up the songs and Roland just kept saying, like, calm down, calm down, bring it down. Um, but he said they played the songs too fast, but they played them technically perfectly. Um, but but what was amazing about that is that audience of 
of kids got to see a Scottalites, a, a legend. And that pop, that opened the, a light bulb in Roland Alfonso's head. And playing that show convinced him that it was time for the Scottalites to regroup, which they did. And they went on to have a very successful career in the 90s. They put out another album, but they started touring again. And um, in many ways, uh, they made more money in those five or 10 years of touring than they did in the previous 30 years because there was such an audience and an appetite for ska music again. Yeah. Um, anybody, anytime anybody comes at me and says that the nineties ska boom was a net negative, I'm just like, no, I'm sorry. No matter what came out of it and what you think of no doubt or sublime or whatever, the Scatolites got a payday and got exposed to a mass audience in the States. And that is just an incredible miracle. I mean, for this, obscure 60s Jamaican band that were known in England, but never made a mark in the States uh, to, to have that career is, is just a remarkable thing. But tell us about the Skavuvi Sk tour of 1993 and how it brought together all three generations of ska. Sure. So, um, you know, this was a brainchild of <clears throat> Rob Hingley who uh, wanted to um, show, uh, I think, to give people an opportunity to see the history of ska live. So the idea there was uh, the toasters would represent sort of current American ska. They booked the ska lights to sort of show the roots of the music. And then they convinced um, Special Beat, which was members of the English Beat and the Specials, and the Selector to join that tour. So um, they had a great kickoff show in New York that sort of demonstrated the marketability of this. It was a sellout. Um, and then they took it on the road. And that tour... Uh, really, I think, broke down many, many barriers. Um, they sold out shows across the country. They demonstrated that there was audiences for ska in places like St. Louis and Salt Lake City, a little bit off the beaten path plays in New Orleans, where um, they were getting sellout or close to sellout um, audiences. And I think between the um, International Ska Fest in Berkeley and the, the Ska Movie Tour of, of that year, you really begin to see the coalescing of the energy that that explodes again when you have real big fish and Operation Ivy and the mighty mighty Boston. This is the the lighting of that fuse. This is demonstrating that there's a fan base for this and an appetite for it. And those bands, which have also just started, um, uh, begin to take advantage of that. For instance, Tim, Tim Armstrong was walking around the International Ska Fest. If you go on YouTube and you type in International Ska Festival, you can see Tim, he was sort of like a semi-host of like some cable access show. Um, I think he's wearing like a Raiders, foot, uh, Oakland Raiders hat, and he's just walking around, kind of meandering around, asking people like, you having a good time? What do you think of the show? But that's Tim Armstrong, who later goes on, you know, to form Operation Ivy and Rancid. So um, just another fan there. Um, but again, it shows the connections for, for where all, the, all this energy came from. And Mark, you tell the story so well. Thanks so much for coming on the show. My guest has been Mark Wasserman, and the book is Ska Boom, an American Ska and Reggae Oral History. Mark, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate speaking with you. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. On Thursday... Nate and Brooks Long discuss the autobiography of the legendary R&B producer Jerry Wexler, co-written by David Ritz. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Let It Roll.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 